Welcome to the Horror Vanguard, your one-stop shop for everything from Adorno to Zardoz. Prepare to get spooky. <laughs> Greetings, friends, comrades, and fans of the dark and the macabre in all of its forms, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard, the podcast that brings you the spookiest uh, film culture paired with the most rigorous anti-capitalist leftist theory. Uh, my name is John, better known as the Liquid Guy, and joining me is my co-host comrade and co-conspirator uh, ash ash how you doing i i am doing amazing i am three shots of espresso in and i have five more to go so by the end of this episode i will be vibrating through the walls this is this is good it's gonna be a fun episode <laughs> oh this is uh we wanted we wanted to, to take a moment to thank everybody who have who, who's been listening to us over the years subscribing to our Patreon feed, making us uh, the third most successful podcast on the internet. We greatly appreciate your efforts, but this will be our final episode <laughs> as as one of us will most likely be killed in the course of the recording. The takes are uh, going to be so we love you all. hot. The takes are going to be so hot, at least one of us will die. Um, right. oh, wait, wait, so, okay. Okay, to, to 20, 2019, I, 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 I want this to be a more positive year with a positive mental outlook. I was I was listening to the Vegan Vanguard, and one of their recent episodes was all about positive outlooks and reclaiming that space to envision a positive future. Mm -hmm. And and we're both going to survive, but the takes are going to be so hot. We we create a new kind of uh, energy that, that is completely <laughs> environmentally safe and is sustained solely by you and I arguing about Rob Zombie's Halloween. Uh, welcome to the show, folks. I may have I may have given away on uh, on Twitter that I am. I am not a fan of this. I, I, th thanks, Ash. I hate it. I hate it. Thanks. Uh, I, 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 I hate it so much. Um, no, you know, this only your, your visceral reaction only means that more Rob Zombie movies are going to be down the road for us. <laughs> and I thought we were, I thought we were friends. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> for our second episode of the first month of 2019, we are returning to Haddonfield, Illinois. And we are dealing with another cinematic version of Michael Myers, this time 2007's Rob Zombie-directed uh, work, Halloween. So, um, you, you, missed a f you missed a few adjectives in there, such as uh, fantastic, auteur-driven, and... Um, Aesthetically pleasing to the point of eroticism, uh, but the, but do the, go all, on. All three of those, every word, <laughs> amazing. Every word you just said was wrong. <laughs> oh man, uh, I, I I didn't realize we're gonna have to have a separate fight about auteur theory. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I think I think I would agree with you in every instance on auteur theory, except for uh, Mr. Robert Zombie. Uh, who who is in fact a a visionary great man genius, uh, Mr. Robert Zombot, um, <laughs> <laughs> the the only the final auteur, the 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 monster that's hiding in the Hollywood uh, subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> so so okay so let's let's kind of like we'll start with like some big picture stuff, shall we? Let's let's kind of zoom out for a minute. Um, and I know, Absolutely. I know that, context. That one of the things you wanted to talk about is 
uh, remakes generally, right? Especially the 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 early in the early two thousands from about from about I think probably two thousand five to two thousand ten, there was this real trend uh, for going back to old horror properties and kind of mining them yep. for uh, remakes because they they have name recognition, they are relatively cheap to make, and they're usually guaranteed to be pretty successful. Uh, in terms of return on the investment, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Horror, horror is a great financial bet if you're in Hollywood. It takes nothing to make, and you just, you know, quadruple your investment. Yeah. So you release it at the Halloween weekend. You have a big opening. You slide down the box office listing in the next six weeks, and mm-hmm. then you know you're laughing all the way to the bank. Yep. But like, what do you think? causes this right that especially that sort of five-year window in the early 2000s when we saw uh kind of so much nostalgia for um previous iterations of cinematic horror so i think i think if we zoom out a little bit from the horror genre this is this is kind of happening to all of hollywood right now yeah, like true. every everyone, like all all the Marvel movies, the, those are just remixes of old comic books. Yeah, you know th- those are all remakes. They're just being remade into cinema from the comic books they came from. I mean, the Spider Man franchise has like forty eight different reboots at this point. Uh, all of them origin stories. <laughs> all all of them origin stories, uh, except for except for Into the Spider Verse, which was which was honestly, and this isn't this isn't me being uh, an obscene heretic. This is not a real opinion, but yes, Into the Spider Verse was amazing. I have heard nothing but good things about it, and I can't wait to uh, to catch it. All this film, how they how they tackled the uh, backstory problem was cute. I like that a lot, but that's besides the point. So I think um, I'm I'm a little resistant to. I guess I shouldn't say resistant, but I I am much more drawn to a very simple explanation for kind of why this is happening when this starts to happen. Mm. All of these movies would be in the public domain if it wasn't for the fact that Disney has consistently pushed copyright law to to an infinity point. Right. At at this point, no property will ever enter the public domain ever again. Like yeah. I know, I know another deadline for that's coming up, but I'm sure Disney is going to petition the right-leaning courts, and they're going to be like, "Oh yeah, keep your properties." Yeah. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that you know you can't you can't really iterate on a lot of you know Hollywood. If you want to be a filmmaker, you you can't use the ideas that were in Halloween. You can't use the ideas that were in Nightmare on Elm Street. You can't use the ideas that were in any of the flagship. Uh, you know, movies of the genre. Mm. And that's because all of these things are locked up. Even if, even like, you know, tiny movies that weren't very successful, their IP is probably owned by like a Warner conglomerate. Yeah, yeah, almost And certainly. that means, yeah, it's, it's, if you want to make a, you know, use a movie that grossed like $20,000 when it was released, you're going to have to pay Warner like 400000 Yeah. And weirdly, in the, uh, another mention of Black Christmas, wasn't the Black Christmas remake like 2006? Mm-hmm. Uh, the year yeah, uh, yeah mid 2000s amazing uh, once again we end up talking about Black Christmas and after you have provided that very sensible salient uh, materialist point uh, I thought maybe it might be worth talking about this from a more theoretical point um, I was over on Rev Left a little while ago talking mm-hmm. about Jameson's postmodernism shout out to Revolutionary Left Radio um, 
and Jameson talks about this in terms of the, the abundance of the nostalgia mode in post-modernity, right? So with the collapse of a kind of normative, the kind of high modernist style that he is a champion of what you have is you have the rise of parody and pastiche. And so that it is a kind of symptom of a culture that is sort of being hollowed out of its cultural uh, creative imagination. So we end up returning to old cinematic forms, not because uh, maybe that's the best story that we could tell, but because that's those are forms that still seem to hold some sort of meaning. And so we mine them and try and find something vaguely new to kind of give us the old aesthetic thrill. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I really struggle with this film because I see it dropping in these old aesthetic markers with like the, hey, do you recognize this thing? Listen to, <laughs> listen, listen to that score. Remember that theme and the, and the time that you watched it and it, and it kind of got you? Uh, but it's reconstituted in a very slick, homo sort of way. Um, so I think there's something interesting to think about these kind of horror remakes emerging uh when they do especially when you consider like the, the high point of horror is like the late 70s and 80s and the remakes are appearing you know uh in the not like five to seven years from about 2005 onwards that's when they really come into their own i don't know I, what do you i think that's do you think i'm sort of going nowhere with this or do you think there's something to it i, I definitely i definitely think it's, it's these two things walking hand in hand right because if you if you look at a very we have a very convenient case study that, that kind of um, nods to both of our points and that's George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, totally. You know that that movie, thanks th thanks to a goof of no one picking it up, is public domain. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Anyone can do anything with any of the images or art. It is perhaps one of the reasons why our banner is a screenshot of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> You know, uh, in like on, on every level, like right now, you and I can write Night of the Living Dead Part 2 if we felt like it. Yeah. We could do a redub of the original. We could do, you know, that's why if you look at um, zombies being one of the most popular horror monsters still to this day, even though we're a little bit past the heyday of zombie and they've entered kind of this weird uh, phase right now where they're completely played out, but they're still incredibly successful. Hmm. But one of the reasons for this could be is that, you know, all of all of the zombie fiction we have really kind of falls around that George Romero uh, zombie mold. Yeah. And that's it's public domain, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Walking Dead is George Romero fanfic that no one can sue over because no one owns Night of the Living Dead. We all own Night of the Living Dead. But then I think I think what we're kind of circling around here is two points that there is um, kind of philosophical constraints upon the imaginative production of culture because of the uh, cultural logic of like capitalism and that has mm -hmm. and that has a materialist symptom right which is the um, the stranglehold of intellectual property the the massive uh, monopoly of media companies so that like you know three major conglomerates can control can can, can control you know, huge swaths of popular culture. And I think you're totally right. Those those two things go hand in hand. I mean, and I also think there is uh, that desire to produce a cheap, mass, easily distributed, easily consumed and easily disposed of media product, which mm -hmm. was behind a lot of the, that, you know, the stuff that came out of Michael Bay's production company, Platinum Dunes, those, yep. those awful Texas Chainsaw films, 
Uh, which that that I will uh, completely agree on. Those were just kind of um, and it, it, to a greater or lesser extent uh, from Dimension that this and its sequel that came out in two thousand nine are uh, totally both products of a, of a prevailing cultural logic, um, which Jameson sort of dissects almost prophetically in his book, and has kind of very concrete um, causal influences too, right? Yeah, yeah, I, and I think that the, the the theoretical framework and the materialism are almost almost the same analysis. Just yeah, just yeah, looking yeah. at different different aspects of of the beast here. Yeah, totally. you know where where our imaginations have been forced. They've been forced because we're all under the bridle of capitalism, and this is where capital has has effectively smashed our field of view. Yeah. I mean, Fisher would go on to talk about this mm -hmm. around the same time as this film, actually, in capitalist realism, you know, with this idea that it's impossible to conceive of anything that hasn't already happened and all that can happen is now, you know, we're stuck in a perpetual 1970s uh, with, with this remake. <laughs> yeah. It's it's always Halloween in Haddonfield. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to conceive of anything new with this story. And so what we get to me uh, although I know I know you disagree, um, is something that's <laughs> that is, uh, to my mind, anyways, is kind of profoundly mm -hmm. disappointing. Because go if, you, on. if you're going to if you're going to go back to the past uh, on a cult cultural level, what you're looking for is a kind of the aesthetic pleasures of the original, but deployed in a way that is both recognizable and different. Um, Jameson talks about this in the context of Star Wars, right? The original Star Wars trilogy, Lucas's uh, films from the 80s, are essentially um, sort of pastiches of the old Buck Rogers serials of the 1930s to the 50s, filled yeah. with, uh, with a, a sprinkle of uh, Kurosawa and old Joseph Campbell style narratives sprinkled in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was it was a love letter to all of the all of the mediums he loved as a kid. Yeah, but. But it's not a it's not a pastiche that's without meaning. Jameson says mm -hmm. there's there's still stuff in there that seems to be, you know, kind of trying to do something. But I think actually with the kind of this, I think is a pastiche, and it's a pastiche that doesn't do anything that is satisfyingly new. And in fact, the stuff that is new that it does is not very good. <laughs> I, I would I would absolutely love it if if this was like a a, a live uh, session right now because I just got this giant this giant grin because I'm like yes <laughs> it begins I I would completely disagree like I feel that Halloween is a hard movie to try and do like a a, a very like the kind of remake Hollywood would want a remake that is effectively just a reshoot of the original script and is incredibly safe and you know you know is going to cash in on the audiences yeah yeah because it's not like i mean they're, they're not going to give this to, to someone who's going to run away with it and make like an incredibly artistic reinterpretation so yeah that's, i think that's given true. given the constraints and and knowing what rob zombie <laughs> wanted to do and his goals and kind of his film style in in the first like I think I think a lot of new material was added and and a new way to approach it and to approach the figure of Michael Myers and and kind of 
uh, to, uh, to use to use the modern parlance, like the extended Michael cinematic universe, which which you can kind of see this film attempting to build out in a really weird way. Yeah, totally. I would agree with that. Actually, one of the things that I I, I mean. I mean, my my position on it is basically that the remake shouldn't have happened, right? But but seeing that it did happen, this is probably the only kind of remake that could possibly be produced, and that's sort of why it's bad. But I will I will concede absolutely that one of the things that I think is um kind of really the only sort of logical choice you can make is to try and expand out the psychology of uh, what were in the original film fairly peripheral characters yeah absolutely and like i i i don't even think this this film is bad because were it were it not for disney's uh, uh demoniacal chokehold on every single aspiring filmmaker's ability to use the art that has inspired them this would have been like just another in a sea of Halloween remakes and Halloween reboot, just, just like Night of the Living Dead. You know, we have a glut of zombie fiction. Mm. And if it wasn't for Disney, Disney specifically, because they've been like as a company, one of the largest driving forces, although there have been other actors in extending copyright law ad infinitum. Mm. But we would be lost in a sea of Halloween remakes and remixes and reboots and prequels and sequels and comic books and you know, like non-sanctioned properties, just like we have like everything from warm bodies to walking dead. Yeah. But like, um, I think, I think firstly, the the thing that's <laughs> glaringly obvious to me is that Rob Zombie is not as good a filmmaker as John Carpenter because I'll, I'll put my biggest bugbear front and center, which is this, Let's film, do it. this film is not scary. This film is not frightening. <laughs> this, this is, this is not something that manages to evoke tension. This is not something that manages to, uh, like, um, Xavier Aldana Reyes has written extensively about this, that horror horror is a, is a genre that is supposed to be affective, right? It's supposed to do things to you. And this film doesn't do, like, I don't, I don't jump. I don't, it, it's not scary. It's not a scary horror movie. And isn't that a problem? Sort of, <laughs> right? So, so I think there, there's a lot to to unpack with this. I, I definitely, I definitely would agree that this is probably one of Rob Zombie's weaker films. You know, he's made he's made several at this point, and he is like. I think 31 was his most recent, if I'm mm. not mistaken. Yeah, I think so. But but you can tell that he has just massively improved as an artist. He knows and is able to, you know, kind of articulate what he wants to get across a lot better. Yeah. From from like over a decade ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I think, I mean, actually, there are some zombie films that I actually really like. And I think are kind of really good slices of like Grindhouse uh, exploitation horror and that's and that's like like i think that's the one thing that kind of confounds this a little bit is because that's that's rob zombie's aesthetic he's very interested yeah. in the retro america carnival scene he's very into grindhouse he's very into 60s and 70s exploitation yeah, yeah and yeah. and those the, that that's the ethos he brings to his movies like um lords of salem yep yeah. which was uh, effectively his soft remake of rosemary's baby 
uh, yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. a fantastic movie. Like that, that movie is incredible. I also, I, I also have some good things to say about um, the Devil's Rejects and yep. House of a Thousand Corpses, precisely because th- that's where I think his aesthetic works. But in this, yes, film, I, I would agree. In this film, I think his aesthetic is is tonally completely a wrong fit for for a remake of Halloween. Um, I think his camera work is so so eminently predictable um, in this, and I think a lot of it falls into some of the worst and most uh, problematic aspects of this genre. That um, you know, I'll keep mentioning Carol Clover, that Men, Women, and Chainsaws <laughs> talks about the way that he treats women, the way that um, that violence is meted out towards them. I think is is again predictable and and worryingly complacent about the worst aspects of 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 this form. Um, there are there's there are two there are two sequences there are two moments in the film where I genuinely went oh that's an interesting shot. Um, and those two were where Annie tries to run out of the house after her boyfriend's been killed. Mm-hmm. And he yanks her back inside and you have the door slam shut and you have the house in that close frame with its completely still suburban setting. And I was like, ooh, like that's the first moment where the film kind of breathes and you go, ooh, there's something interesting happening there. And the ending right at the end after its ridiculous double fake out, which ugh, made me so angry. <laughs> Oh, oh, I can't wait to get to the ending because I thought one of the few things that Rub Zombie actually, in my opinion, improved on in Carpenter's work was the ending of the film. Um, and the ending where, where right at the end where Laurie uh, shoots him. I was like, that's... that's yes, the, the improved and scientifically superior ending. I, I recognize the one you're referencing, yes. <laughs> but all, all of the rest of it was just full of these baffling choices, like stylistically... Uh, I find that I find that the, this is a really interesting point that you're bringing up because um, Rob Zombie, like if you listen to the director's commentary, a lot of the shots that Rob Zombie went for are intentionally Carpenter shots from the original movie, you know, mapping mapping Carpenter's cinematography onto his own uh, aesthetic preferences. I mean, maybe this is why it doesn't work because Carpenter's aesthetic in the original is very uh, almost clinical, right? It's, Everything, everything's very cold, very tight, close frames, uh, lots of motionless cameras and tracking subjects through the frame. And like zombies aesthetic is this carnivalesque, grimy chaos, right? So if you try and map a shot onto that aesthetic style, I also think, I also think there's some moments of like so many like, ooh, scary noise on the score. And like, there's even moments where like the frame wobbles to show the force of an impact. It kind of oh turns- yeah, I mean like, but that that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's kind it's, of it's very cartoony. <laughs> it's it's very cartoony, but that's I, I don't think that's a fair criticism to level against Rob Zombie because if you look at like literally any movie that's been released in the last like 15 years, you'll see shaky cam on impact. Uh, and it's it's and maybe that's my problem. You know, I think you know maybe he's trying to replicate, um kind of camera movements and shot selection for an, for his own aesthetic, but they just don't work. See, I I thought they worked really well for me, and I thought they worked because Rob Zombie's Rob Zombie's aesthetic, when when he's not um working with someone else's material, is I mean, it's grindhouse exploitation. It's it's incredibly raw and incredibly 
it's uh, warm is a weird adjective I would give to it. You're very, you, it has a very strong presence, right? Mm. It's got this um, carnivalesque realism to it. And then using using some of Carpenter's very like almost mathematical shots overlaid with this like like grease Rob Zombie's greasy reality that he's trying to convey to you. Mm. I, I found the juxtaposition of those two things to to be jarring and and to effectively express this idea of like these these reimagined pasts that we're trying to have. You know, we we've got we've got like this modern greasy reality that's being overlaid with this clinical uh, like I guess classic horror precision and how the two refuse each other. Yeah, and I think I think maybe. <laughs> Maybe maybe you find that tension productive, but I think I think it's jarring. I think it I think it doesn't work. I think the way that he frames violence in this is cheap. Um, so let's let's talk about. I think I think this is a good segue because you had mentioned you had mentioned the violence against women uh, specifically earlier in the pod, and I think it would be good to talk about how Rob Zombie's Halloween uses violence, how it frames violence from a uh, cinematography standpoint, and maybe contrast that a little bit to the violence we saw in Carpenter's film. I mean, I think that's that's maybe the way into this, because in Carpenter's film, you, you barely see any. And this is yeah. this is this is one of my one of my major kind of complaints with the theme is of this film is that it the kind of frenetic energy of that carnivalesque grindhouse aesthetic I'm thinking there there are kind of two scenes of two, two deaths here where that where it disappears, and what you actually get is you get like long unbroken takes of of there is no kind of frenetic, you know, uh, affective um, cutting. That's like these long takes where you just made to like I wrote about this a long time ago where, where I kind of borrowed Laura Mulvey's essay on the male gaze and called it mm-hmm. the, and called it instead the psychopath gaze the fondness in these films from like 2007 to about 2010 2012 to uh, make you complicit in the violence is not is done here in a way that feels very and i think this is deliberate deliberately feels very unpleasant to sit through yes um absolutely but crucially it is not scary you know what? What it is is a degradation of of a, of a female character on the screen, and a degradation of the audience for watching for being complicit in it. You know, you I, I came out watching this film going just kind of like feeling a bit gross. You know, and so I I felt the same way, and I have felt that way for for almost all of Rob Zombie's films that I've seen. Like I I walk away from these films feeling a little bit disgusted with myself. And I think that that's kind of the point. Like it, it reminds me a lot of New French Extremity, right? Like the the point of Rob Zombie's cinema isn't to get the the ooh spooky jump scare that you would get in in another horror movie. It's to kind of look into your soul and be like, why are you even watching these films? It's it, it really kind of it's seeking to ask a fundamental question of the genre why why we enjoy watching people be destroyed by monsters but this is the thing this is this is the thing that i'm sort of kind of going over because um stephen king writes about this in his thing on horror where he says that where he makes that distinction between like 
what you're really oh, aiming, yeah, aiming yeah. for is you're aiming to terrify people. You're aiming to scare them. And if, if them. you fail that, and you, you gross them out. Gross them out. Yep. And I find this film in places quite gross. It's never scary. And what that means is that uh, Carpenter's film, I think I will be thinking about forever. This film, I will probably not be thinking about ever again. Because I go, eh, it was gross. But the the desire to raise those kind of philosophical, metatextual questions of like, what is this form of fine, but you're doing it in a form which is fundamentally not the same thing that you're drawing from. I honestly think that Carpenter's film is, is a kind of different creature. And so I think to go, why do we enjoy watching something like John Carpenter's Halloween um, is a very interesting question, but it's not a question that Rob Zombie can really answer because what he's made you watch is not the same thing it's i think that rob zombie's not trying to answer the question i think he's trying to viscerally pose the question yeah totally totally and i think the question the answer that you get from from going like why do i why would i watch rob zombie or like any of these kind of early 2000s horror remakes the answer that it gives you is it, it does not reflect well. You know, this is this is horror at its kind of sleaziest. There's you know there's a kind of lingering voyeurism in watching these often like semi naked women be strangled and stabbed and crawl away. And the reason why I think that's maybe that you know I, I don't know I don't know I think the answer to the question of like why are you watching this is like probably not very doesn't say very good things about the audience but the the kind of return question is well why are you making this and if you're making it just to sell a product then are we not just is this not kind of sacrificing something of the of the of the critique of the original film about the mundane suburban landscape and its ability to conjure up kind of fresh alienated horrors are we not just replacing that with well well people like girls in horror movies and it's fun and i'm like is that is that it is that, is that so horror? i think i think th- this is another area where i would suggest that rob zombie improved on the original uh theorem of the film and that in carpenter's movie it's i mean like you know we discussed this in the previous episode the entire film is this mediation on the violence inherent in suburbia mm. but carpenter kind of the the film enjoys its aesthetics more than more than it enjoys exploring kind of the gritty reality that is the violence inherent in you know suburban and working class existence right instead of instead of exploring these things in any kind of concrete or materialist terms it explores them in in a very metaphoric way inviting the viewer to try and piece it together on their own whereas rob zombie is very much like he, he you know Carpenter is serving you a meal on a silver dish that has very subtle flavors. And it's up to you as an intelligent flavor guesser to figure out what's in there. Rob Zombie has tied you to a chair and has been force feeding you rosemary for three days straight. And if you still haven't guessed what the flavor is. And I think we can see this a lot in like if we look at um, uh, Sherry Moon Zombie's character. I think I think it's like like a great little case study of that. You know, Michael Myers's mother um, exists more in the film, and she's much more fleshed out. And we kind of she gets a lot of space, and we see a lot of the violence inherent in suburbia, and how that's you know dealt to women on on like several different levels. And it's not just 
it's not just the crass and very kind of obvious like oh well you know men are violent towards women which is absolutely true but it's this granular like men are not only violent to women but because of the patriarchal system this is social oppression there's economic oppression it radiates down to their children it affects the kind of uh, relationships they can form and we 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 see the bigger picture with rob zombie's texts through through sherry moon zombie and her work i can't remember the name of the strip club she works at off the top of my head i know it has one of rob zombie's like awesome exploitation names where it's like like the like the sugar bunny or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. um but this is this is another thing right fleshed out yeah but what we're presented with is and this is i think a point i would make about all of the characters in this film is that his revisionist history of the 70s extends to the people who inhabit the universe right so none of them none of them are anything really beyond a cliche really oh oh i have strong okay so everything before this has been like well john i'm gonna nuance i'm gonna nuance that but this is like them's fighting words go on go on <laughs> i mean you know i i i think his because this is essentially what a remake of the carpenter film is right it's zombies mm-hmm. revision of what is 70s suburbia like what kind of horrors actually lurk there and what we get are the oh um We'll get on to Dr. Loomis, who I have very strong feelings about, mm-hmm. and we'll get we'll get on to Michael, but maybe we can talk first a little bit about um uh the kind of wider cast. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh there are two that I like, um, but that's because they're Udo Kier and Brad Dorf. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I I genuinely had the biggest smile on my face when Udo Kier pops up as the strangely accented uh, head of the hospital for the uh, uh, this sanatorium that Michael is imprisoned in, um, who for some reason, yes. with his broad, almost indecipherable German accent, is running an right. Illinois sanatorium. Which that, I really so that's I mean like to, a little aside, but I wanted that backstory. Yeah, how did Udo Kier manage to end up here? Uh, I, I feel I feel like the horrible answer is Project Paperclip. Yes, but. <laughs> Given the time frame we're working with here, um, you know the Lori is a is a is a pale imitation of the original. Uh, the friends, I, of, of I think Lori's better. I, I think I think uh, changing her character. I think Lori Myers is a huge improvement over Lori Strode. Uh, uh, the friends are, are worse, blander, and again. I I actually had to have the the Wikipedia page up whilst watching it going. Oh, that's who that one is because the film is so bad at characterizing these these people um in in ways that i'm also like th- these people don't seem real like i if you're trying to create uh, and they don't seem kind of grotesque enough to buy to, to make me buy into this hyper real carnivalesque aesthetic um i think the characterization is by and large really weak well, so let's go. Let's go by so some of the uh, more built-out supporting characters. Let's start. Let's start with um, Sherry Mood Zombie playing playing. Uh, oh my God, Deborah Deborah Myers. Yeah. Like what? What? What about? What about her? 
fails in your estimation as as a character or or the acting or something like what about that didn't work for you well what do we what do we get about her as a character that she has three children yep that she works at a strip club that she has a terrible boyfriend yes the worst uh, boyfriend uh the 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 disgusting transphobe um, yeah and I'm like, is, is, you know, you have, so, if you have the space, you know, we, we, we don't see anything, a, a, anything, as I say, really, that goes above a kind of cliche. Oh, no, her, oh, man. So her character has so much depth. You know, Sh- Sherry Moon Zombie stole this movie for me. You know, like, I think that, I think that one of her, her character is, nuance and exists on multiple levels and presents kind of you know there's there really wasn't a lot of uh stuff to work with on michael myers's mom you know from yeah, from like you, a canonical you, perspective you, you had right? so blank, much blank freedom. you had you had so much freedom you had so much scope to do something that was uh that was uh interesting and and rich and <laughs> And, 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 and how and, how much more could you could have asked for though? You know, like I feel I feel that like so okay. So here's how I read Deborah Myers, played by Sherry Moon Zombie. Persuade me. So so here's how I see this character, right? Um, th- this is this is set in you know Rob Zombie's grimy vision of the American past, approximately around the seventies. Although, like you know, ju- just like Halloween, it's kind of aiming for that timeless aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so to say that it's intended to be in dialogue with the '70s is, I think, a little misleading because it's meant to be more of like a, like, like that's the uh, lapsarian American suburb is kind of what both of the both Carpenter and Zombie were working with. Well, I mean, they date this quite specifically, right? They they say exactly mm-hmm. how long he's incarcerated for. Oh yeah, they say exactly when the original murders happen. So, but I mean, like on on, on a larger level, culturally. There's not a lot of, you know, artifacts. It doesn't feel like it's trying to be in dialogue, even though it's set in the 70s. It feels like it's yeah, trying to be yeah, more yeah. in dialogue with the prelapsarian fantasy of the American suburb and the horrifying violence that actually constitutes the American suburb. Yeah, totally. But I would agree. But back to, back, back to, back to Deborah. Um, so here's here's how I read her character. I've I've seen this movie a few times now, and I remember that um. So I used to hate Rob Zombie's movies way back in the day before I developed the uh, true, true sense of a (laughs) uh, great artist and the fine eye of a critic of the medium. But before before I I, uh, remedied myself of those weaknesses, one day, one day you can climb to the heights of being able to appreciate (laughs) Rob Zombie's kind of okay Halloween remake. (laughs) (laughs) No, go on. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Um, No, but so... So how I read uh, uh, Sherman Zombie's character in this film is that it's it's this incredibly gritty and incredibly real peek in into the life of of this woman, right? She she's a she's a sex worker at the strip club, you know, and and we see we see like the the raw disrespect society has not only for for women but for sex workers in particular, 
with with the uh, scene of uh, young Michael Myers being bullied and how the bullies kind of approach and treat her mom or his mom rather, we see um, the economic condition. Like their home, their home may be large, but it's definitely not respectable. The thing, the thing looks greasy. It looks falling apart, especially compared to the Strode house later on, when things start to look more more Carpenter-esque when they look a lot cleaner and a lot more picturesque later in the film. And I think that like with, and then with her parenting of, of Michael, with her ability to try and always, always find a way to save things, always try to find a way to connect with, with, with her son, to find something redeeming in there, to find something to love. Even, even after the literal worst case scenario that could have happened to her has happened to her, you know? And like, we we know we know that this movie can handle the social damage and the social ramifications of things so so we can imagine like like what her life must be like now that her son is incarcerated as like a homicidal maniac and and nevertheless like like she's there you know she's she's trying against all odds to build something better out of this horrible world and I think um, we get, we're probably going to get into this later, but we should definitely get into young Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, I like I like that I like that line of of argument. But one of the things that I will say is that you are constructing that almost entirely out of elements where she is not on screen. Like we we see we see a, a parent and um, try and visit Michael. When he's incarcerated, we don't see anything of her life. Um, when he, like, not nothing of her kind of uh, dealing with uh, the consequences of his actions. We see no uh, self-examination of her own. Um, I mean, this is what we need to talk about. Kevin kind of built itself around, for example, which also I think was published in 2007. So, I mean... I, I kind of admire the attempt. Ouch. <laughs> but, but, I mean, for me, the reason that's not convincing is because there's so little uh, in there of, like, stuff where she's on screen. You know, you have this blank... We get, we get, all, of the, we get all of those scenes where she's with well, Michael in the asylum. We you get, get... You get you get the scene at, at the breakfast table. You get the scene where yeah. she's called down to the school. Yep. Uh, you get the two scenes where she's... Uh, comes to visit him at the sanatorium and you get her death scene and that's yes that's it like that yeah that's 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 our fleshed out agential active uh figure given 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 the fact that she's she's in a supporting role and given the fact that rob zombie had to cut a bunch of uh scenes that built her character out because they just didn't work with the final the final flow of the film i i think we get a lot you know like she she's playing like fourth fiddle in this movie behind or maybe fifth behind the two versions of Michael Myers, Laurie mm. and Loomis. Mm. So given given the fact that she's fifth down on the ladder in terms of like importance of information of characters, I feel like we get a healthy serving of her and a lot you know like 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 the scene where michael's getting bullied and we learn a lot about his mom's life even though she's not in that scene that's still valid in the discourse of her character that still provides us information of her character uh yeah even though even though sherry isn't physically present to act it out somehow yeah yeah. so uh you want to talk about young michael 
Let's do it. I feel I feel like this is I feel like this is going to be the most contentious part of the podcast. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> All right. Maybe. Who knows? So so that sort of ties up the discussion of of Sherry Moon Zombie and Michael Myers mother. And I think that brings us on. I do I do want to add um it occurred to me uh so so uh to to the listeners we just took a short break because this has been a little bit of a longer recording stretch than we had to get into but I do um want to address one thing that occurred to me about Lori's mom before we get the ball oh, rolling. Yeah, yeah, go for it. And that's, that's, um, so, so there was some comments about her, her agency and her being possibly depicted as like a very agential character. And I don't think, I don't think it's as crass as kind of like, Oh, she's the strong independent woman working under adversity depiction. But I think, I think the focus is much more, you know, like, like, like Rob Zombie's roots are exploitation films. Like I spit on your yeah, grave. Yeah. And we're getting we're getting that depiction. We're getting like this is the horrifying reality of what it's like to live as a, a sex worker under the patriarchy. And it's not it's not trying to like be frilly about it. It's giving us this tiny tiny little glimpse into that nightmare in this larger sea of nightmares. Yeah. But small point. Yeah, yeah. Just want to throw so that, that out. That does sort of bring us on quite neatly to talking about young Michael Myers. Um, and so Zombie says quite a lot in in the lead up in the production of the film that he wants to kind of flesh out the character to make him more um uh to to kind of give you the logic of what would kind of lead up to uh this kind of figure emerging right yeah yeah so so go on give me give me your take give me your hottest hottest take so here's 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 my take here's my take on uh michael myers jr the young, the young child. I don't know if he's actually Michael Myers Jr. But um, so I think I think this is a weird depiction, a because it's paradoxically really, really, really fun to watch, and it's also horrifying. And it's fun to watch because if if you if you kind of like if you, if you go one step back and you look at this movie not just as a single unified art piece but as the larger orchestration, the the the. You know, like in, in a lot of the behind the scenes, Rob Zombie's discussing about how the the child who played young Michael Myers w- was just having like an an infinite amount of fun on set because he got to like throw things and fake stab people and swear all the time, and that is like every every like you know <laughs> ten ten year old ten year old like cisgendered heterosexual boy's dream is to just have an adult be like. Yes, you're allowed to destroy all the toys in this room and you can swear as much mm-hmm. as you want today. <laughs> and I think that, you know, watching it from that angle, like 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 Rob Zombie's films are kind of like comically playful. And I, I think that, that that adds this this very interesting layer to it because you know all these people as actors and actresses who are working on this film are are kind of like they're 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 having yeah. a ball when when they're working on it like you know from from what i've read about being on set for rob zombies films they tend to be like you know he, he's a lot like um and any of those like 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 those other like weirdo quote-unquote auteurs who have their like reliable stable mm. of actors who who enjoy getting on set with them and they have a lot of fun you know like your sam raimi's yeah yeah, yeah. And so I think that there, there, there's that aspect for me when I watch this film. I know that I probably won't share that with the majority of audiences because the majority of audiences probably didn't watch the you know director commentary stuff. But I think that definitely does color my approach to it. But um, to, to the character more specifically, 
I, I find this to be an interesting approach to uh, the violence of Michael Myers. So in our previous episode, we were kind of talking about how Michael Myers has this kind of like uh, this, this absolutely negative patriarchal mm-hmm. violence, right? That just exists to destroy everything around him. We talked about how Carpenter's direction was like, oh, you move, you move to your first mark and you stop on your mm-hmm. second mark. And it, and it was kind of devoid of emotion and devoid of feeling. And I think one of the things that makes Rob Zombie's Halloween so uncomfortable is that he returns emotion to Michael Myers. He returns humanity to the character. So it's no longer the shape, this kind of phantasm haunting suburbia. It's now um, a very troublingly real depiction Right, like watch, watching this and having lived in and around American suburbs my entire life. Oh, that's not true. For like two thirds of my life, um, like like this, the, there there are like troublingly real things that happen in the story. Like the genesis of Michael Myers is the genesis of so much like childhood violence that you hear about in in the states, right? And it's it's this this kid who's got maybe there's something troubled. Uh, going on with him personally yeah, yeah. right but it's the it's these massively exacerbating social uh circumstances that cause this to happen right you know like it's it's not that michael meyer and i think this, this is kind of rob zombie's thesis with um intentional or otherwise his thesis with the depiction of young michael myers and that it's not it's not a question like it was for carpenter about like this kind of mythological and and kind of like severely distanced uh pure evil this abstracted thing it was this very much like like this is a reality we're all facing this is this is something that's happening to people in our community and it's breaking them down and that's what i find really interesting about rob zombie's reinterpretation of a young michael myers it's kind of the inverse of the Carpenter's you were, approach. You were kind of expecting this to be the most contentious bit, right? Oh, son, son, son of a gun. Did uh, you agree with me? Actually. Sort of, actually, or at least partly. I <laughs> do, but I don't think that it... I mean, I, I think I think the character is... I, I, I kind of get that intention, actually, from it. But I think the mm-hmm. film structurally and formally works against it in such, a, in such Ooh, interesting. ways that... It, that kind of renders the character semi incoherent in lots of important ways. But I, I absolutely, I absolutely would agree. The little kid, whoever it is, who's playing young Michael, seems like he's having a blast, um, which I totally would agree. Makes it seem very uncomfortable for us. As, but there, but right. it's it's in those moments where I do kind of go, okay, I get the kind of cathartic carnivalesque extremity of what zombies trying to do like i said i think structurally and formally the film kind of works against those very good intentions because of the way that it's framed and the way the film is structured the way that it's shot um and i actually kind of like the the concretizing of moral dysfunction of like of violence of showing that it has its products in sort of um actual social circumstances i actually think that's i think that's important i think that's good and and, and broadly accurate <laughs> but there are there the problems come i think with the introduction of dr loomis who, who yes yeah i i think that this is going to be a huge 
if I can if I can guess where you're going, um, you didn't like this depiction of Loomis. Oh man, it was it was terrible. <laughs> it was genuinely terrible, and and the reason it's terrible is because I think it embodies a uh, a tension which the film is not able to square, and that's the the conflict at the core of this film is between the material production of Michael Myers as violent uh, murderer um, with some well it's suggested but some kind of strange and um relationships to women generally yeah i mean i think i think that's the um that, that's the psychosexual violence of yeah, the slasher yeah, totally. that 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 is given kind of very material yeah. concrete ideas and then at, which which is at deeply the disturbing same time you have i mean Malcolm mcdowell's character dr loomis is caught between going uh, yes, he was produced by these sets of, of, of a kind of perfect storm of circumstances and of, of social systems and of alienation and, and the systemic problems of, of late capitalism in America, which I'm like, yeah, fine. And then he goes, and he's completely mm-hmm. evil and the devil. <laughs> and, and I'm like, you can't, you can't, you can't have both or, or maybe you can you you can't you can't have your demon possessed slasher phantom no, and eat it too and it's so it's so incongruous and it's so jarring when he goes yeah well we should have all seen this coming and and i failed as the psychiatrist who is supposed to help this person you know kind of build a coherent psyche and also he's a demon he's the boogeyman he's the devil he's we need to shoot him in the head. We need to cut off his head. We need to we need to stake him through the heart with garlic. And I'm like, right. you're a psychiatrist. <laughs> the advantage of Donald Pleasance's Dr. Loomis is that Loomis actually, that Loomis picks one, right? He, he doesn't go, mm-hmm. he goes, no, oh, he's yeah, evil. Yeah, he's, he's a very shitty he's, psychologist. He's not a good psychiatrist at all, but he goes, nope, he's evil. He's, 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 it is yep. metaphysical, his condition, but... I diagnose you with demons. Uh, we should we should drill a hole in your skull to release the evil humors from your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yep. but this Dr. Loomis, this this histronic, bloviating, unpleasant, self-aggrandizing hack goes and, and exemplifies one of the worst things about mental health discourse in American society generally, um, in a way that is just despicable, uh, is it goes... Ah yes, psychiatric um, uh, dysfunction is produced by social causes, and he's evil and, and, and crazy. And I I thought in, in ways which I find genuinely quite offensive for a film that purports to be showing the materialist conditions of how these things are produced. It sacrifices all of it for some like uh, uh, honestly, Doctor Loomis is one of the worst things about this film. But I think that so. I think there is a, re- a re- uh, redeeming isn't the right word, but but there is a way to successfully read Dr. Loomis's character in the film in the context of the material production of violence in of the American suburb. And that's uh, there. There's a certain there's a certain kind of psychologist out there who, in one hand, will 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 happily uh, uh, quote the Jungian scholars of old. And then on the other hand, will start bloviating about the ancient evil powers of dragons <laughs> and how they are imbued in the essence of the lobster. That sounds, and so that I sounds think like that, someone could write a like, book about that. <laughs> it's, it, sounds like, it sounds like, you know, like, hear me out, this is kind of weird, but I think there's something about the lobster that makes me want to suggest 12 <laughs> rules for life. I, I, it's okay, but, 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 I do. But, yeah. 
like like this the, the, this depiction of Doctor Loomis is is very much in line with kind of that 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 type of media figure, like this hack psychologist who who in one hand is is still somehow phantasmally connected to the actual sciences of psychology and psychiatry. And and a legitimate attempt to, to help people understand actually, the mind. Actually, maybe this is the a great other way hand, of summing up why I think Doctor Loomis in this film ruins is is just terrible. Is because he's Jordan B. Peterson, <laughs> right? See, and I think that I think that like, you know, a, a bad the, like like a character who is bad because of the nature of that character isn't a bad character. If you get where I'm going, like like I detest this Loomis. Wait, like I hate the I hate the original Loomis so much because he he represents a lot of what's wrong with psychology, like like this desire to be like, oh well, you've committed these crimes because you're mentally unstable. When when the research shows that the majority of people with any kind of mental illness are totally harmless to uh, everyone around the, them, usually the even victim, even more harmless. Violence. Um, yeah. And, yep. But this and this I think is, that and I think is, that this this, thing. this updates Absolutely, that figure. It's an update, but it's not one that is. And I think if you're going to do a film that's based around Michael Myers, you have to do it in a way that makes Michael Myers coherent. And there is there is a contradiction here between him being this kind of metaphysical, demonic force that comes back into the suburbs to, to wreak bloody vengeance and being a, a, a symptom produced by material systemic forces. And I'm like, you can't have your he's the boogeyman cake and eat it too and this film tries to and it, and i i think it i think it only really tries to though with these bits with dr loomis i think in the broader extent rob zombies michael myers um of course it's going to share some aesthetic and cinematic similarities with the original michael myers but i think that rob zombie following his own uh you know proclivities as a filmmaker and his roots you know, really depicts Michael Myers not as like this uh, phantasmal force, but as a very flesh and blood guy, if not an incredibly strong and tall oh, flesh oh, and blood oh, guy. Oh, like on. I think, we um, kind of we kind of lose any trace of that where he's like, yeah, that that grave was that gra- headstone was half a ton, and this gets even worse in the second one where it genuinely turns Michael Myers into a cartoon character. <laughs> Oh yeah, the the second the second one is silly, but we're not talking about the but second. But there are one. there are already there there are already symptomatic <laughs> moments here of like. Oh yeah, I think I think that it definitely he is it, often in moments of violence. It's like this is a cartoon. This is not this is not your um, produced psychopath. This is your metaphysical demonic. And I'm like, pick one. <laughs> Just well, so so something something that's really worth pointing out about the vi- like the actual physical violence that this Michael Myers conducts is that a lot of it wasn't produced with the help of special effects. You know, like the the scene where he's um oh I forget the character's name, but he's fighting the trucker oh, in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And you see the partitions and the stalls get destroyed. Those were actual metal bathroom stall partitions. Those weren't meant to be destroyed like that. Dude, these guys are just fighting so hard in that bathroom that they physically yeah, destroy that's metal. True. That's true, but and, the, and a lot the, of a lot the, of like the doors and walls that he kicks through are are physically the, yeah, extant. But the, the you know, post production and the framing of it makes it makes him look goofy. Like it, I mean, come on. At various points, the score is basically providing sound effects. <laughs> Boing, <laughs> splat, and I'm like, come on. Are we like? 
this is where the contradiction within, and I, 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 I don't think that Zombie really understands, like, I don't think you can square this contradiction. And it stops being productive and it starts to make the character kind of fracture um, in ways that are not in line with that very strict, you know, product of unfortunate circumstances. Um, and like I say, I think it taps into some really kind of um, problematic moral discourse that exists in a lot of contemporary American politics, you know, especially around um, the, the thing that it made me think of is particularly the discourse that emerges around school shootings, right? When everyone goes, oh, well, we mm-hmm. need to talk about mental health. And you, then that yeah. conversation never occurs, of course. Oh, we never need to talk about systemic violence. We need to talk about mental health. And and I sense a similar kind of tension here, right? We need to talk about, you know, the, the, the terrible circumstances, the terrible systemic problems that have produced Michael Myers, but we never will because Zombie is too infatuated with his, you know, mythical superman <laughs> who can who can carry a half a ton and and run very quickly at a wall leaving a perfect outline of his body <laughs> well i mean like, like it's, it's interesting that you're bringing up the cartoon-esque uh aspects of michael myers and you've completely forgotten the scene where where he gets the acme crate of dynamite <laughs> and he Despite blowing up, an entire crate of dynamite yep. next to his face remains yeah, completely totally. unscathed, save uh, for I some also ash. I like the scene where Doctor Loomis paints a tunnel onto a wall. Onto a wall. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is this is my this is my kind of maybe my one of my most fundamental problems with the film, and I find it exemplified and kind of personified in Doctor Loomis. I actually think your analogy and your comparison to to Peterson is perfect, um, and. That's fine, but the film is based around making Myers kind of understandable and and um, explicable within certain kind of systems of production. And I, I will agree that when, once it once it comes time for uh, Michael Michael Myers to start being the Michael Myers that we know that that devastating force of negative violence. Uh, the film, the film does start to muddy. Like, like I do, I do agree with that. Critique. I mean, honestly, I think a really interesting film would have ended with his escape from the sanatorium. I mean, I think that's if you're going to humanize him, if you're going to explain how Michael Myers comes to come home on Halloween evening, right? You don't you don't kind of wander off into this into the spectacle of slasher cliche. And well, I think I think it's a I, I don't I don't think it's strictly that cut and dry. Like, I think there's a lot of Rob Zombie is trying to square this circle and, and there's the conflict between his kind of exploitation, you know, gritty American realism that he's trying to paint and Carpenter's mythical force. And, and, and I think the, that and, and the problem is you know, he tries to do both. He goes, okay, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a gritty expose of what really goes on behind closed doors in the American suburbs and the terrible monsters that are produced. I'm also going to make going to produce a terrible produce monster, a terrible monster in a weird slasher film in the same movie. And I'm like, st- structurally, this this does not work. <laughs> and I, I think that, but I think that there's there there are nevertheless scenes later on where where we do see that dialogue reemerge, you know, when, when Laurie Strode, who does not 
know that she's actually Laurie Myers is in the basement mm. with Michael. And for some reason, Michael has like, like she, she thinks she's about to be murdered, but Michael's just kind of reunited his family. And we kind of, I, I think that creates a little bit of interplay. And then, um, oh my God. And then the final scene, I, I think um, when, when we get to that, I think the final scene also reinvigorates this discourse a little bit, but I, I would, I would totally agree that when it comes time for Michael to become the William Shatner mask wearing uh, superpowered monster that we know I, it and loses love. me quite quite quickly. I have Rob, Rob Zombie starts starts to he he loses his aesthetic for Carpenters, and that is a huge weakness a of the film. Where the young Michael puts the full sized William Shatner mask on, and it's really funny. I know. That was really, so cute, and, and the film plays it like it's supposed to be a scary moment. Like, oh, look at this! Look at this relic of the of of eighty cinema, and it's like it's so silly and it's so funny. So I, th- I think that, that 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 scene is kind of emblematic of my least favorite thing with remake culture, yeah, exactly. where 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 it's like where where you find you find out where Han Solo got those socks that he talked about for a fourth of a second, I, and it's yeah, like nobody, nobody cares. It does not add anything to my appreciation of the character when you go. Ah. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I would extend this a lot to the, the opening half of the film, where you go, ah, did you did you want to know why Michael Myers comes home and tries to kill everybody? And honestly, my answer is no. <laughs> so so on a, on, on a raw level, like, I mean, this is fiction, and all all backstories, like. I mean, like we, we we could just as easily have had a Halloween remake where Michael Myers was like injected with a devil serum by an evil cult, and that made <laughs> that him a would super be a killer. Really weird idea, <laughs> you know? And like and like, but but all these kind of exist on like this neutral playing field of like because they're fiction, mm. you know, it it doesn't at the end of the day it doesn't really matter. Like like there yeah. is no logic that they're yeah, beholden totally. to, and so so getting getting a backstory, like like I'm not. I don't I don't really care either way. Like if if there's a remake coming, like I kind of anticipate that like there's very little to build on in Halloween. You know, like yeah. there's not a lot to remake in that movie. And so if you if you if you had to remake it, there there's only a few moving pieces I, to I play mean, with. Which is why I think the the one from last year is maybe a, a kind of smart choice where you where you wreck on mm-hmm. everything else and you and you yeah. um kind of explore the consequences of the kind of paranoia of um living your entire life believing that somebody's going to come and murder you but but i'm sort of like you know Mm -hmm. oh why does why does michael myers do what he does Ah, it's because he had a terrible childhood i'm sort of like yeah uh, okay fine i I suppose and we can we can definitely get into the the problematic aspects of that because i think that this is um and I mean, like, like I, I don't want to, I, I think one of the things I really want to try to resist, especially with this podcast, is to try and, like, uh, like delve the thoughts of the people yeah, behind yeah. the film or, like, psychoanalyze or something. But one of the faults of this film as a text is it, is it falls into, like, this classic pitfall for reading childhood yeah. trauma. And that's, and that's we go like, oh, you know, Mike, Michael Myers became this evil monster because of these adverse socioeconomic conditions under which he lived. But that completely negates the fact that, like, you know, we, we don't see any people of color in this neighborhood. We we don't know if we see any LGBT people in this neighborhood. And they are no doubt getting it worse than, than yeah, young absolutely. Michael here. Absolutely. I think that's a very good although, point. Although, like, like, young Michael is hit with a bunch of, of 
uh, transphobic dialogue from uh, uh, Deborah Myers' boyfriend. Mm. But, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily read that into, like, an essence of his character. I would just read that into boyfriend yeah, is totally. trash. Um, and I think, I think that, again, is... I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about Myers in the Carpenter one is that we don't get this delving into a kind of... In fact, what's scarier is that the suggestion from the very little that you see of young Michael Myers in the original is that maybe family life was happy and it was fine. Yeah. And maybe... Yeah, it it looks normal. Even people who are brought up in a nice middle-class suburban home can suddenly one day pick up a knife for reasons that we can't necessarily even comprehend, never mind articulate, and perform acts of unspeakable violence. And I think that is a far more um, compelling and honestly a far more frightening argument, a far far more... See, I actually I actually feel the inverse about that. I feel that that is less frightening in a way because so so Carpenter's Carpenter's Michael Myers is just kind of like we we know nothing, you know, just at at some point something motivates this this child to become a psychosexual slasher killer. And that that, that is that is completely unknown and to me that's like okay, well then whatever, it could have been anything. Maybe he didn't like the episode of Looney Tunes he watched that day. Like 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 that was never scary for me. Rob Zombie's rendition, even though I saw it when I was way older, um, was much more terrifying because all of, all of a sudden it's not like, oh, well, you know, it could be anybody. We really don't need to think about it. Now it was like, OK, well, you know, we see the violence in these communities. We see how this violence is perpetuated on the, on the lines of patriarchy, on the lines of economy, on the lines of social status. And I think that that, you know it's the diagnostic effect of horror that we talked about in our black Christmas episode. Well, honestly, um, that's, that's you precisely know, what I think um, happens with um, the Carpenter one where you go, the diagnosis is that suburbia is like all of those nice middle-class homes are complicit as well. And in fact, just because well, you don't see those material causes doesn't mean that they can't come back one Halloween evening and smash through the wardrobe with a giant butcher's knife. Yeah, and I think that um, the difference on on this level specifically on this on this specific item between these two films, it's it's just an aesthetic mm. difference between the two filmmakers. Carpenter, Carpenter kind of wanted to cloak that in a little bit more mm. mysticism, and Rob Zombie wanted to attack you with a shovel. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I think I think uh, that I could see how that would turn off. The, the what like seventy four percent of Rotten Tomatoes reviewers who have no taste. Um, Y'all cowards don't even appreciate Rob I Zombie films. Do not appreciate this one. I, <laughs> I have to say because I I know I know I I have I have an uphill battle uh, going going uh, on on defense for Rob Zombie's I mean, Halloween. I, I would I would happily join you if it was another Rob Zombie film. Um, quite. Oh yeah, and like like I I know that there, there's a lot that this movie uh, kind of fumbled on, and 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 I totally agree that it, it is not a very scary film. It, uh, yeah, we, it's it's a deeply disturbing it's not, film, it's not scary. like all of Rob Zombie's it's not scary. films. It got, but it's not it got not a very few spooky. Out of me from its jump scares, but it like like um, Carpenter's film um, and has has kind of lingered in my head, and and it is like thrilling and tense and 
um, involving. But this is this is noisy and grim and gross, but it is not scary, which is maybe that's the biggest problem with trying with this remake of Michael Myers. Michael Myers isn't scary anymore. One, because you know exactly how he came to be. Uh, and two, the way that he behaves is kind of completely in line with all of the other generic slashes that were found there, their genesis in Carpenter's original film. So so with that said, though, like, I don't know if I've seen a horror remake that's honestly made me spooked, you know, like like thinking back to like the remake of The Thing and the Texas Chainsaw remakes mm. and like Scream 37, you know, like they like all of them have kind of lost their luster because they, they exist in these pre-made yeah. molds. And like, I know 90 percent of what's yeah, yeah, coming at me. Like I like I genuinely found the Blair Witch Project remake to be frightening because they 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 retconned and remade so much of the the original film that I mean it wasn't really a remake it was like a weird reboot sequel requel I don't yeah. I don't even know which which one of like the uh, reboot prequel sequel dequel <laughs> words to use on it it was a Nyquil but um I I feel that like. This this is a problem inherent yeah. in remakes, I, you know. I, maybe, maybe, like if, if I if I remake Texas Chainsaw, there's maybe, only so much. Maybe you can that's do. the thing. Maybe my the kind of fundamental problem is the problem with of remaking and the demand for the remake of the postmodernist postmodernist culture and that operates on the logic of like capitalism. You know, maybe because of when and what it is, it couldn't it wouldn't be anything other than, uh, you know. Uh, could you make a good remake of Halloween? I don't know if you could. <laughs> so I think that, I think that like, as just like a technical answer to that question, yes. But I think that, and, and this is something we'll probably never know the answer to, but I'm only assuming that at some point Rob Zombie might have been like, I want to do this really weird thing, like all of my other weird yeah, Rob yeah. Zombie movies. And some some studio suit was like, our test audiences reveal that we do not, in fact, like people being murdered yeah. in carnivals. So no, <laughs> you know, like like some something might have been shot down yeah, at maybe. some point. And I, I think that that for me is the problem with with reboots, remakes, prequels, et cetera, and so forth, so on and so forth. And so forth. Um, so it, it's 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 the uh, it, it's the fact that the interest isn't in exploring art. the The primary interest is the shareholders seeing a return on an IP yeah, that they own. Absolutely. And so no matter no matter how uh talented or or aesthetically unique any set of artists are, they're all going to be yoked mm, yeah. by that. I think that's I think that's very true, actually. I think that's very true. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I think um, uh, we haven't, we haven't, uh, my my good fellow, uh, Sir the Venerable Lord uh, Lit Crit Guy, we haven't, we haven't yet discussed the climax of this cinematic engagement uh, in which we oh, have partaken. I was hoping you wouldn't get it. You weren't noticing that. <laughs> John, John, we have to climax. <laughs> What will what will what will our audiences think if they don't listen to us? Climax. Uh, uh, okay. Well, with that beautiful uh, 
segue. With that transition, that that transition that is in no way let getting us, cut. Let us talk of the talk of the ending to the film. Um, let me let me paint you a picture you, with words. Go, go. Let me let me be the Bob Ross of your mind's <laughs> eye. There are there are no mistakes here, John. Just just happy little slasher killers, and and happy little people getting shot in a yeah. horror movie. You know, we we want we want to we want to paint a suburban house here. No mistakes. Just paint the house. There we go. I'll I'll have that serve as as the introduction. So so the climax of the film uh, for for everyone who hasn't seen it and a refresher for everyone who has. Um. After after you know the the long battle with the slasher. Lori Lori Strode, who we now know to actually be Lori Myers, yes. dun dun dun, Sequel Sequel the the hook. infant sister. <laughs> Sequel hook, kids, get in there! But um, she she's in a battle with Michael, and we've kind of seen through the course of the battle, she's kind of evolved from. Uh, I think I think really quickly, Lori Lori's character in this one, I really liked and I really appreciated, because she's not she kind of defies the the final girl model a little bit you know she's making these crass sex jokes to her parents you know she's being like like a regular teenage girl with her friends sure some of her friends are a bit more you know like party than she is and she's a bit more into studies and grades and things but but you know none of them strike me as being like disastrously amoral as as like the the Cloverian model for the final girl would have us have a spectrum of like, you know, like the the virginal one all the way down to the the absolutely slutty yeah, one. That's a fair point. But um, so and so through the course of this final battle, we've seen Laurie's character kind of go through mm. this evolution, where where she's 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 kind of like progressively becoming more violent and and she steals well she steals probably the wrong word because uh dr loomis is dead at this point but she takes dr loomis's gun which had fallen to the floor and uh she winds up on the yard with michael myers and they're they're kind of struggling and she's trying to aim the gun at him and then uh the final the the final scene of this conflict is we see michael myers's hand grab the gun and then uh, the shot is steadied, and uh, Laurie pulls the trigger, and Michael Myers dies. Or, I mean, dies in quotes, right? Because this is a horror movie, and no one ever uh, dies. You can't have that. You can't have. You can't have anyone. The studio executives can't have that because that means they can't cash in on any further IP yeah, yeah, usage. Absolutely. Um, no, so you can't. That would. You cannot kill these people. Uh, oh Plot yeah. Armor. Yeah. I mean, I think I think endings of horror films are pretty difficult to do well anyway. Um, but it gets yes. it gets to the point where this one is a is a bit silly. Um, we have the she, he gets stabbed, he gets shot, he falls off the roof, he gets shot again. It's very like classic slasher monster, you know, this unstoppable. I think we should petition to get Rob Zombie's uh, Michael Myers into the Avengers because clearly he can't be hurt by anything at all <laughs> oh man that, that's but, but the movie would last like five minutes he would just like stab thanos in the forehead and like then it would be over <laughs> the movie i want to see is michael myers with the infinity gauntlet oh, yeah, basically i mean this is this is the point where you go again you you kind of forsake any pretense towards 
realism or towards or towards any yes. kind of like materialist understanding of of who this person is and I, I do I do think that as as the fight with Michael Myers uh, goes on pretty much after the scene where Laurie's in the basement and Michael's kind of coddling the photo of of the family back back in like you know when times yeah, were yeah, better yeah. you know every everything after that point kind of just becomes like slasher de rigueur and people running around and like bullets don't work on him until they yeah, need yeah. to so, et cetera and, and et cetera of course, you've you've had a bit of that beforehand as well so again you get this kind of uh, cognitive uh, structural whiplash yes i'm going i oh, know you see he just wants to reunite his family and he's also a demon <laughs> nope <laughs> and and, he, and he's and he can't be hurt and, by and, mortal means until he, can, he needs he to be walk at a pace usain bolt would have a trouble keeping up with uh full speed right. um which is you know fine i suppose <laughs> right like like i'm willing to i'm willing to forgive a lot of this because the, you know that is the slasher and at the end of the day this is a slasher movie and a slasher who got stabbed in the shoulder and then was like ow guys come on oh i need an ambulance like that would be perhaps very comical but not very satisfying as the model of the slasher goes i love that ending just, oh my god that would have gets... been so perfect oh geez why'd you do that there eh all of a sudden he's from wisconsin for some reason <laughs> And then is that is arrested and then that's the film. He's arrested. Oh man, Doctor Loomis recovers and he writes a second book, and then that's like the twelve rules for not raising a serial killer. And it's all it's all it's all about how like the humans have a genetic similarity to yeah, bananas. Yeah. Yep, there and we go. Dr. That says Loomis it all. Would go on Dave Rubin's YouTube show. <laughs> Oh my, oh my god, he, he totally, totally would have gone on Dave Rubin. Oh my god, he would be on the Joe Rogan podcast and there'd be headlines where it'd be like respectable psychologist Dr. Loomis does DMT. <laughs> oh my god, oh my god. Oh, there there's like a nightmare reality well, this, where this, this is, is happening, happening right now. I mean, I And like like Elon Musk is like I've just worked with my colleague Dr. Loomis oh, on this brand new so exciting gosh. project. That's such a See, we don't live in the worst timeline. There, there, there's a few timelines um, beneath us. But no, the ending, the ending is uh, fine, I suppose. Um, Doctor Loomis is in it, so that's not very good. Um, uh, <laughs> just every every moment. I, I honestly do think that, like, I read quite a few of the reviews for the film, and a lot of people, the the high point they picked out was Malcolm McDowell's Dr. Loomis, and I'm like, Dr. Loomis actually exemplifies all of the reasons this film is awful, um, and and is sort of fundamentally broken. Um, but yeah, I think the ending is... The, the, the problem is that with, with, a, with a filmmaker who is as aesthetically distinctive and honestly quite imaginative as Rob Zombie, to have the final third final you know maybe even the final half lapse into just genre cliche after genre cliche i'm i I am sort of like well where's the where's the where's the spark of distinction where are the fresh ideas i mean that's why you give a property like this to someone who's carved out his own kind of unique niche right i'm i don't buy into auto theory much at, at, at all no yeah same same as much as i joke about um, it i, I don't like, either you know, surely that's that's one of the what that's that's part of the reason i could see i mean i think he's about a wrong choice for halloween but that's part of the reason i can see some production company going we need a director who who can bring something yeah. to this 
I'm the one. Don't 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 hire an artist if you don't want totally. their art. You know, hire hire like hire one of those directors that wants to cash the check and they'll yeah, give totally. you what you're looking but for. Because like, I I can imagine uh, uh, if Rob Zombie cut loose more and he really you know opened up his aesthetic and made a very Rob Zombie Halloween precisely. special. That, that I think yeah. would have made would have maybe been the thing that could have persuaded me on it, but but. Mm-hmm. As I say, you know, we go, ah, we, we're back in the slasher film and, you know, you get the kind of, by this point, 30-year-old camera movements, you get the same framing of violence, you get the same beats, and it's fine, you know, it's fine. That's that's the product, that's what people came to see. But is it not, like, is there not a bit of you that's like, come on, Rob, where's... <laughs> <laughs> what if- oh yeah i would i would have loved rob zombie to cut loose but that but at the same time like i don't know set it, set, was this a personal set, decision set, he made or is this a constraint in the haddonfield fun fair that comes to town and right oh my god i was so i like this was my reoccurring thought through the whole movie was what if this but a house yeah, of a thousand courses but like there's a tradition in haddonfield where every year the halloween carnival comes to town and you, yep. you, what if what if the whole Myers family was yeah, like that? If, you know, what if it wasn't just Michael and everybody got know, in on the party? Into it, if you like, I say maybe you're right. Maybe it's it isn't a personal aesthetic choice. It's it's the constraints of the IP of the production company. But that is mm-hmm. precisely why this is such a. It is it is paradigmatic, right? Of of all of the the thwarted potential of horror in the contemporary yes. age right where it's turned into yes, yes. a kind of predictable saleable commodity and even someone like rob zombie who is weird and gross and pro- mm, incredibly and, distinct, but, but distinct can still get washed yeah, out and he produces this which is mm-hmm. you know uh, and i will never forgive you dr loomis dr dr jordan b loomis <laughs> Dr. Jordan B. Loomis. That's the thumbnail oh. for this week's episode. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, don't make, don't make me Photoshop. I don't want to stare at Jordan B. Peterson that long. I'll just put some lobsters uh, next to Loomis. And um, I I think it is it is a disappointment, but it's a disappointment that is produced by the cultural logic of, like, capitalism. And it's it, it, yes. it panders to the very worst aspects of horror. It panders to the worst elements of horror audiences. Um, and it, it, I said this, I said this kind of earlier that like, um, I think the film is caught between its, the metaphysical nature of, of horror and its material causation. Right. And in a way he's caught between like, you know, uh, this idea of like nowadays we don't necessarily buy into the metaphysics, you know, God is dead, uh, post Nietzsche, but Mm -hmm. he tries to make a materialist, slasher but can't do it because in the end what do we have we have the boogie you know laurie asks right at the end was that the boogeyman and dr fucking loomis goes goes, you know i think it was and it's like it's it's like but that is what jordan b peterson would have said 100 percent a yeah, he 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 would he wouldn't have been like, oh, you know, we should really look to the nature of our communities and how can we lift everyone up. He he, he would have been like, oh, you know, what, no, what we have here in his like voice. weird lilting voice. 
Oh, this is, oh my god. Rage. Where you go, right, how do we arrange society in such a way as to make the emergence of symptoms like Michael Myers impossible? Right? That's that's the question that, that kind of materialist critique of the slasher would ask, right? But instead, mm-hmm. we go back to this old metaphysical conception of what what evil is we start out go saying no evil is produced it's manufactured it's it is socially caused emerges from the totality of social relations uh but then like you know i said right before we started recording i wanted to bring in nature and i'm like then we get we get the reluctance to accept that god is dead and to follow through on those materialist conceptions and we go mm-hmm. back to the old notion that ah well <laughs> do, do, dr jordan b loomis <laughs> in one of his 12 rules for ensuring the survival of uh, yourself against the serial killer would, would be all over this. <laughs> you know, it becomes oh, yeah. a kind of police function, right? Again, you kind of have to reinscribe order, but we don't have to undergo the rigorous critique, the, you know, the relentless criticism of all that exists that this is maybe calling for. So maybe I'm more sympathetic to this film than I was at the start. What about you? Um, I think you know my my opinion has largely oh. remained the same. Like I I appreciate I appreciate this film and like it, it's it's trying to do a lot of good and interesting things and and they aren't always very successful, but but nevertheless there there's a lot to discuss as with this we, film. We, you know, one one thing. <laughs> right. Well, well, one thing one thing that I I do I do want to say. Um. Is that our our episode on uh, Halloween? John Carpenter's Halloween uh, is about uh, looking at the clock now, approximately thirty five to forty <laughs> minutes shorter than this episode is going to be. <laughs> and so, I, I think there's something to be said about. Um, and this is definitely a, a part part of this is that. Uh, you know, Car- Carpenter's Halloween has been the subject of so much um, academic and popular yeah. discourse that everything that needs to be said about that film has probably yeah, been said true. at this point. And there's there, there's not a lot of wiggle room for discourse um, on that film. I mean, there's there's probably certainly a lot to be done, but at this point, like it's mm. been pretty covered. Rob Zombie's Halloween, um, because it attempts to do a lot of really interesting things, and because it's it's confused in its message because it's in dialogue with with so much about late capitalism, capitalist realism, IP law, um, Carpenter's original film, Rob Zombie's influences and exploitation in Grindhouse. I think that this movie makes for richer discourse, even if it is a uh, technically inferior film, which I would agree on. <laughs> that almost That almost was you saying... I think John might be right about some things. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were okay. So, so I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to present myself as being totally moved. Like, like I, I think, I, I think, like, like almost everything you said has has been totally correct <laughs> ab- about will, this film. I will, I will also admit, you know, that I just, you I, absolutely uh, encouraged me to nuance my opinion and to maybe give it, give I it feel, more I feel like credit, we are which pre- maybe means I'm a little more disappointed that it, that it doesn't achieve what it's capable of. I, d- I definitely think that we're also um, 
You know, one thing, one thing that's definitely going to come up with our podcast as it goes on is that like you, you can critique parallel to someone like you, you can you can wind up in critiques that don't necessarily mm. intersect, but are still completely valid, mm. you know, like discourse on this film, uh, you know, centering its attempt to have a conversation about materialism definitely doesn't go all the way there. Like the, this film needed to end with Laurie shooting Michael Myers and then looking to the camera and then, and then being like a specter is haunting mm. suburbia. You know, that specter is the specter of Marxist materialist <laughs> analysis, right? It needed to go there at the end. You know, we needed to, we, she needed to pull off the mask and realize yeah. that, you know, like, like, Oh my God, it was, it was capitalism all along. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the monopoly guy under the mask. And then she pulls off her human face, and it's Karl Marx. Then we just cut to black immediately. <laughs> what, right? See, that would have been a the, wild the ending. international but plays but... over the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that would have been amazing. See, see that. See if uh, if copyright law wasn't so vicious, we, we could be making that film right at now. The end. <laughs> oh yeah, just just, just recut the end, and it would be you and I playing the roles. <laughs> And then we get a little turn of the frog to be Dr. Loomis. Uh, oh my god, Dr. yes. Jordan yep. Dr. Jordan B. We, we, we would uh, retcon his character to introduce his middle initial. So uh, to, to, our, to our Patreon supporters out there, if we can hit our new funding goal of around $500 million, you can help us reshoot the ending of Rob Zombie's Halloween to be a Marxist in-joke about how much Jordan B. Peterson sounds like Kermit the Frog. And with that in mind, uh, thank you so much for listening. Please please do consider um, contributing to the Patreon account at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. Your critical material support helps make the podcast happen. Um, sorry. John and I are both on Twitter. You can find uh, the links to our Twitter accounts in, at the Horror Vanguard Twitter, which is at Horror Vanguard. Uh, we encourage you to follow us to keep up with the podcast, ask us questions, get involved. And uh, stay spooky. Stay spooky, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky. Stay spooky.